October 31st is usually associated with Halloween, or originally All Hallows' Eve, a Catholic holiday to honor the dead. However, this ancient Catholic holy day shares its place in the calendar with another, not quite as famous event, Reformation Day. In fact, October 31st, 2017 marked the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's nailing of the 95 Theses, the event that sparked the Protestant Reformation. Since then, the church has been at war. Yet today, old divisions seem to be dying. As the West grows steadily less Christian, the church, both Protestant and Catholic alike, has grown more ecumenical. Is this a good thing? Are Catholics and Evangelicals allies? Or are long-held rivalries there for a reason? Today we ask, who's afraid of Catholicism? of the Spiritually Incorrect Podcast. On this week's episode, we have Was the Reformation a Mistake? Pope's Gone Wild? And Being the Most Christian You Can Ever Be. My name is Seth Hart. Join with me is Jonathan Lionheart. Howdy! You always, always start a podcast with a howdy. I hate it. It's it's my caricature of America. I'm not American, so I'm trying to fit in, and so I say howdy. If you ever become Catholic, I'm pretty sure that's punishable by excommunication. Howdy, demons. Howdy, purgatory. I'm very excited for today's episode because we have a Catholic historian. And I've told Seth about this, but I feel like the Catholics are haunting me. They've been at my heels for decades now. I'm a Protestant, happily so. But He wakes up, they're hovering over his head, <laughs> they're outside his window, they're trailing him in cars. Yeah, they're they're everywhere I look, there's a priest just glaring at me. No, but I, I finished college and a lot of my friends started to go Catholic, which I think a lot of us have those friends who kind of go to the Catholic church who weren't Catholic, but then go that way. It's almost the cool thing to do in sort of intellectual academic Christian communities. So I have a lot of friends who are becoming Catholic. And then my mom started to go to mass with her boyfriend. And so we have Catholics in the family. I have Catholics in the friends. And they're just everywhere. And I don't think I'm going to become Catholic. My wife has told me that I'm not allowed to become Catholic. And that if I do, I'm in trouble. And I don't think I'm in danger of becoming Catholic. Yeah, but- nightmares where the apocryphal texts <laughs> appear to you. The Pope beckoning you, come Jonathan. And then Luther's down in hell saying, I never should have reformed the church. 
it's sort of like this three ghosts of Christmas past type thing where Protestants come back to warn me of my sins. Well, I've never heard a more haunting expression of why someone is considering Catholicism. It's because the Catholics are stalking them in their daily life. <laughs> I'm not becoming Catholic, but I think Protestants need to have a deeper wrestling with Catholicism and a deeper understanding of what it is. I recently realized that a lot of Christians in evangelical communities don't actually refer to Catholics as Christians. They say, oh, they're not Christian, they're Catholic. And that was interesting to me because I don't know if Protestants really understand what they do think about Catholics or not. I think there's a lot of confusion of whether they're Christian or not Christian. And I, I hope that our speaker today can help clarify some of that. Yeah, so today we have John Reimer to get John that one last step over the Tiber. Yeah. <laughs> so with that, we might as well cut straight to it. We're joined today by Jonathan Reimer. Jonathan, how are you? Very well, thank you. Jonathan is the John H. Van Gordon Assistant Professor of History at Eastern University, but more relevant and important to our discussion today is he is a Catholic. Now, just to start us off, were you born and raised Catholic? No, I wasn't. I, I found my way into the Catholic Church. I, you know, converted using one phraseology. Uh, I entered into full communion using another in my mid-20s. Uh, with my wife. So it was sort of a longer process and journey for me. I'm, I'm not at all a cradle Catholic. Would you want to give us kind of a picture of how that journey played out? What were some of the factors that led on this journey? Again, it, for, for me, it's a combination of an intellectual journey, right? So it, it came out of, for me, studying the Bible, studying church history. But then it also was a kind of devotional pilgrimage too. It's not something that I sought out. I think I know a lot of people who found their, their way into the church because they were looking for something else. They were looking for a way out of their kind of the spirituality of their childhood. That really wasn't my experience. The kind of factors that coalesced for me, kind of weirdly, I started taking Greek and it meant that I started reading the Bible really slowly, sort of line by line. And, and that was what kickstarted me rethinking parts of my doctrine. I started TAing for church history. So it meant that I'd, I'd taken it now three times, once in my undergrad, once at a, at a master's level, and then I was kind of coming back through it again. So I started asking some questions there. And then layered on top of this was an experience of starting to experience the Catholic Church, which I was initially kind of, you know, baffled by, slightly incredulous about, and slowly moved from a position of kind of uncertainty slash, you know, kind of mild antagonism to a, a you know, a very welcome embrace. Well, I was about to ask you, what are some of the things you felt lacking in Protestantism that drove you to Catholicism? It's, it's really interesting to hear that this wasn't a lack that needed to be filled. This was an abundance of something positive that you were encountering in the Catholic tradition. I think, I mean, you know, I think everybody who moves from, from one form of Christianity to another, from one, one account of the church to another, I think, you know, probably does experience some lack. But, but I agree with you that it wasn't my sort of primary experience. Um, I think the, the great sort of church historian, theologian, Yaroslav Pelikan has a kind of description where he talks about kind of, he found orthodoxy <laughs> underneath his, his sort of previous understandings of faith. And I, I resonate with that to some extent in that, you know, I, I had a really positive spiritual upbringing. And to some extent, my experience finding Catholicism was taking those kinds of things very seriously, trying to say, what do the details of the Bible mean? What does it mean to try to interpret it faithfully well. What does it mean to reflect on what it means to be a Christian in light of church history? These kinds of questions. So that's where I came to. I think I did encounter things where 
the Catholic tradition did something that my previous experiences of, of faith, which, you know, I grew up as an evangelical Anglican. I kind of spent a lot of my youth group years in and around, you know, Baptists, but, but Baptists that were kind of generically evangelical. So I think there were things that those traditions didn't do very well. I think I found in Catholicism a more nuanced theology of suffering. I found a kind of more robust thinking about the relationship between faith and reason, particularly kind of trying to connect, well, if you're going to do philosophy or theology well, you're going to need some philosophy. I think I also found a kind of faith that, that could come to terms with some of the weirdness that I found in the Bible. It's a bit of a strange thing to say, but you think, you know, you know in a passage like in, in Acts, and it's Acts 5, when people are trying to get under Peter's shadow, or in Second Kings, remember where the, the guy's kind of body falls down and hits the bones of Elisha and pops back up? Uh, Catholicism seemed to be a place that could accommodate that kind of profound otherness and supernatural mystery that breaks in to the everyday. So I've got to play a bit of a bad cop here. Please, please do. Why can't evangelical theology also allow for that? Is there not a high place for the Holy Spirit, especially in, say, charismatic traditions, but even in other traditions? What about Catholicism was unique? I, I think probably like a short answer is to some extent, yes, I think those those things can be accommodated in, in other forms of Christianity. And I think you know, I think there's a sort of certain kind of naivety to just sort of saying only my own tradition has these things in a really exclusive sense. However, I would say I think one of the things that Catholicism holds is not one or two of those various elements that I've talked about, but it's the combination of all of them, right? To be Catholic is to be universal. It's to find yourself in the larger church and to try to root yourself in a tradition to which you're bound apostolically, ecclesiologically, kind of this linking through the Holy Spirit. But it's not something kind of intangible that I pick and choose. It's something that I enter into and am a part of. I think I would re reframe the question is I, I think that there's, you know, when I grew up, there was a lot of a, a focus on sort of a, a Lewis-esque mere Christianity, which of course he's taking from a much earlier tradition. But I think Catholicism off offers a most Christianity. And, and I think that's the kind of distinction for me. You did talk about how you had some mild antagonism towards the Catholic Church initially, and there was some overcoming of that. What were some of the real issues that you had to overcome on your journey to the Catholic Church? Yeah, I think, I mean, I had this slight strange experience that there were kind of two kinds of things that, that initially got in the way. Uh, the first were kind of my takes on things that I thought Catholics believed. And so what initially happened was my wife had started to go to Mass with a close friend of ours who was himself a Catholic convert. And as a result of that, started winding up to a kind of once a week meeting of a rite of Christian initiation of adults. It's kind of the process by which people come into the church. And I thought, well, you know, I'll go along. It seems like a nice church community, but I'm going to hit that moment. You know, I'm going to, whatever it is, right? Whether it's, whether it's Mary, whether it's scripture and tradition, whether it's the Pope, whatever that thing is. So I kind of thought, you know, I'm going to have that moment where I'm like, no, this is, this is where it's ridiculous. I'm out. And I never really had that, partially because as I was going along, I just spent a lot of time with these things and kept thinking, oh, no, I think, I think I actually follow the Catholic position on this. So that was a bit of a strange thing. And so the kind of intellectual quibbles that I thought I was going to have didn't turn out to be as serious as I thought they were going to be. What I found and, and still find a little bit kind of profoundly difficult is the kind of ingrained patterns of behavior. You can believe that prayer with an icon is helpful. Actually doing it can still feel weird if you grew up kind of iconophobic, thinking about the experience of, well, what does it mean that there are intercessors? What does it mean that 
one can ask for the prayers of the, the faithful departed, the saints, or Our Lady, or something like that. That's that's kind of easy in principle. In practice, if that's something that you've grown up thinking that's a little bit strange, it's a little bit harder. So I think those tended to be more of the blocks than the kind of intellectual side of things. Well, you mentioned Mary there. I, I think Protestants often have this kind of assumption that Catholics almost idolatrously worship the Virgin Mary, almost like a fourth member of the Trinity. How accurate or inaccurate is that assumption? Yeah, I would say, I don't know how to say this kind of ironically, but it's dead wrong. <laughs> dead wrong, completely inaccurate, but understandable. I think that people think that. And what I mean by thinking that that's understandable is when Protestants come and see Catholics singing songs to Mary, asking for her intercession, those kinds of things, addressing prayers to her, those are the kind of activities that constitute a lot of Protestant worship. So I think, I think that's a, it's an understandable error to fall into. The Catholic position on Mary, you know, speaking, speaking, for, speaking for all of church history and the over a billion of us that there are, really quite simply is we need Mariology to take seriously both Christology and a robust view of human anthropology. But we always want to guard this distinction between worship and veneration. We've kind of inherited some ideas from the East that we use Latin terms for, dulia and latria, are the kinds of phrases that, that are the kinds of words that Catholics use. This distinction between reverence on one hand, the kind of reverence that it's okay to have for a person, someone that's dear to you, someone that you honor, that you esteem, that you see God working through in a unique way, and worship, which is due to God alone, right? kind of strict monotheistic beliefs that, that we all inherit as Christians from, from Judaism. And so we think that, well, it's fine to have reverence. It's fine to have veneration. The kinds of what, what would be only addressed to God, we put in that category of latria. I mean, I think this, this kind of, this, this raises some kind of interesting questions, especially because in English, like our word pray Right? We talk about you know, praying to Mary or something like that, is, is immediately part of worship. The problem being that it's actually not what that word intrinsically means, right? You know, we have an older English, oh, I pray you to do this, this kind of phraseology, which means I'm pleading with you, I'm asking you, I implore you. That's actually what a lot of our words for prayer are, right? We, we talk about asking someone to pray for us, or pre nobis in Latin, right? It's kind of plead for us. Simply put, I mean, I would say strictly Catholic theology is, is very clear on the fact that Mary, as, as our, our sort of veneration of her, is a way of both defending Christology. Think of the earliest Marian dogma, the doctrine of the Theotokos, that she's the God-bearer. She's not simply the bearer of, of the man Jesus, or, or sort of the Christ, but actually God himself is a way of defending a kind of robust Christology. At the same time, you could think about it as something that's fundamentally harnessed to, well, what does it mean to be a Christian, right? So at the Second Vatican Council, for example, there's a debate over, should we have a document that addresses Mary herself? And the decision is made, no, that should be part of our text on the church. Mary is properly seen as sort of the model for fellow believers. So that's where I would start, uh, sort of dead wrong. But it's an understandable. I love that you were talking about this idea of praying almost having different meanings. Was I wrong to hear in there this idea that we don't so much pray to Mary as we rather ask her to pray for us to God? Yeah, I mean, I think it gets, it gets slightly more complex in the sense that, you know, you could say to somebody in that sort of older English, oh, I pray you do this for me or something like that. But I think that's right. And there's a, a really clear distinction between saying, 
is this the object of my, you know, is this the person or thing that I'm praying? Ultimately, no. Prayer can only be addressed to God. But can I ask someone to intercede for me? Of course. And Mary would be the kind of prime individual for that. I might jump in with a somewhat related question, which I think is the second biggest hiccup for Protestants, which is the idea of having the Bishop of Rome as the head of the church. I just want to start with this objection initially is, is this an invention of the Catholic Church or why do you see it as something that belongs authentically to the body of Christ? I think if we go, if we go back to the very beginning, right, meaning we go back to Christ and the apostles, I think almost all Christians, we have to believe that unity is something that's necessary for us, right? You think about Christ's high priestly prayer in John, praying to the Father that they would be one as you and I are one. So I think that's something that in some form all Christians can get on board with, or, or hopefully should be able to get on board with. The question is, what does that constitute, right? Is it, is it a spiritual unity? Is it a unity through structures? Is it a unity based on personalities and offices or things like that? So I think this is where Christian traditions start to divide pretty quickly. And the, the Catholic Church takes the strong stance that fundamentally a kind of disembodied unity is not what Jesus is talking about. And especially with the calling of the 12 disciples, right? This kind of those that's, that are sort of in standing in a way of the 12 tribes in a striking way, sending them out as apostles, that, that that's part of it. So that's where we get this kind of idea of apostolicity. And we, we build on this idea that these aren't just individuals in a particular time, but that they're operating in offices, which are then succeeded by the people that follow. So these things are passed on. I think when you go back to the scriptures, you see time and time again, Peter kind of stands for the whole, right? Sometimes Peter will be sort of the spokesman for the apostles. Sometimes he'll operate in a way that's, that's fairly different from the others. Now, does that mean that he's always got it right? Of course not. Right? He's the one who's denying Christ and other things like that. But as Catholics, we see the Pope as kind of a fundamental way of guarding unity, that essentially that's something necessary and it's something that's been passed down. So you were talking about how the unity of the church isn't supposed to be disembodied, just sort of an abstract spiritualized unity, but that there actually needs to be on the ground things that represent that unity, such as institutions, individuals, leaders, those types of things. Is it not possible to have unity without this monistic one entity at the top who is over everything? Can't, can't we have unity without a hierarchical one who controls the whole church? Hmm. I think there's probably two ways of answering that. It, it might be possible to have that. The, the question I might want to ask is, is that what the church did? I think the answer, at least the Catholics would give, is certainly not. The kind of idea that there is some sort of Petrian supremacy is even something that's agreed with a lot of Orthodox thinkers, though they're going to disagree on the scope of it. So that's one response to it. I think the other is a slightly more practical and, and perhaps more skeptical one. Surely the buck has to stop somewhere at some point. And I think one of the ways we could, we could look at this is, you know, you have something like the Council of Jerusalem that happens in the Book of Acts, and you have, you know, this whole discussion about, well, what's Gentile inclusion going to look like? And clearly there's folks from different parties that are sort of standing up, presenting their opinions. But at some point, then Peter does weigh it in a kind of striking way. So that would be the Catholic read on that is one, well, no, the buck has to stop somewhere. And two, the, the church just, just hasn't done that, hasn't, hasn't chosen that, that kind of option of having a kind of unity that has institutions and people, but doesn't have someone who's holding it together or some place that's holding it. 
So perhaps it would be great if we could have some spiritual unity without someone at the top needing to hold the reins. But practically speaking, I mean, that doesn't work. And I guess you would also say biblically, it's also not what happened. I think that's right. Yeah. I'm also not necessarily sure that it would be great. You know, I look at at other accounts of unity, right? I look at the unity in my own former church, the Anglican Communion, that sort of 75 million people globally. And I think this isn't a very functional unity. it's, It's quite dysfunctional. I think I look at, you know, the kind of rifts that you have now between Orthodox churches. So I'm not entirely sure that that would be the kind of the way to go. I think it, it easily there's a lot of historical examples and contemporary ones of that going quite awry. I'd like to return, if I can, to the question of the Pope and Mary, because I don't want to gloss over some of these objectionable things Please. too quickly. So something that comes to my mind is it's not just the idea of worshiping Mary or their being ahead of the church, but it's the particular doctrines that we apply to them. We have the Immaculate Conception of Mary, the fact that she was sinless throughout her life, We have her perpetual virginity, which there seems to be some verses in scripture that kind of leave us scratching our heads with that. We have the declaration that the Pope is infallible ex cathedra. And the reason I bring all these up in a shotgun fashion at you is not because I want you just to be able to answer every objection ever, but it's just from this angst that's within the Protestant heart, which is, are we applying attributes to creatures what should only be applied to the creator? Let me try to think about how to, how to answer all of those together. One way to do that is to start thinking first to be really clear about what papal infallibility is and isn't. Papal infallibility really says that there's, in certain circumstances, when the Pope is speaking about both faith and morals, there really can't be something else. It can't be about the nature of biology or mathematics or something like that. That has to do with faith and morals. He can speak ex cathedra, right? And there's a kind of debate about how many times has that happened? The, the maximalist position is still only, uh, you know, only several times kind of throughout church history. The minimalist is probably one or two, right, with those, with those various declarations. So it really is still kind of small scale. Interestingly, I think most of the Protestants I know take that as thinking, you know, ceding this huge authority to the Pope. Most of the Catholics that I know kind of think of it another way, which is that we'll never have a Pope that is so bad that he will sort of irrevocably mess up the deposit of the faith on something to do with faith and morals, which I think on one hand is sort of striking, but I think it's a good meditation on church history in which we've had just so many fallible people in all sorts of offices, uh, the papacy being one of them. But if we turn to those doctrines, and we might want to connect them to the, the other two Marian dogmas, right? So the first one is this idea of Mary as the Theotokos, that she's the, the God-bearer. You know, that's really fought over in terms of church councils to say, well, she's not just the bearer of the man Jesus, right? Fundamentally, she bears God himself in a profound way. So it's seen as a way of defending Christology. Then I think that the next one that we're going to talk about really is the, the perpetual virginity. This idea that, that Mary remains a virgin, both kind of during and after the birth of Christ. You mentioned that kind of may present some problems, right? These are the kind of passages, you know, that seems like Christ's brothers are showing up. The problem with that is patristic authors don't necessarily think that's a problem. Almost all of them hold this idea of the perpetual virginity. Incidentally, so do, so do Luther and many of the early reformers, right? This is not something that's kind of thrown out of Protestant t- traditions till much later. But the question here is, is actually what's being said. Is what's being referred to as brothers? Now, some of the ways that patristic authors try to solve this is say, well, Joseph has mar- children from another marriage. That's possible. Another is to say that it's a generic term. 
that refers to cousins or something like that. One of the things that's sort of fascinating about this is that it doesn't seem to have bothered patristic authors who held this idea. Now, sometimes there's a story that this is, you know, this is a result of the sort of Hellenizing of the church, but I think that's a, that's a fair bit of a red herring, just that you have a striking amount of patristic authors who disagree with each other on all sorts of other things, who can find common ground on this idea. So, you know, you start there, Theotokos, perpetual virginity, and then you start looking at these two that tend to be the sticking points and the ones that you would connect with papal infallibility, the idea of immaculate conception and the assumption of Mary. So this is the idea on one hand that Mary is born sinless with, without the kind of stain of sin in the way that the rest of us are. And that's where I think, if, if I've understood you correctly, sometimes folks kind of get their hackles up and say, are you attributing to, the, to a creature something that is fundamentally a kind of prerogative of the creator? And then the, the second of those two, the idea that, that Mary is bodily assumed into heaven. And Catholics leave open the kind of option of whether that happens alive, as tends to be thought in the West, or that she's died, which the Orthodox call the Dormition. I think both of these doctrines, what's, what's sort of striking about them is they tend to be connected to papal infallibility. This is a kind of overreach. The Pope declares something to be the case. But actually, they're widely held within the Church for hundreds, if not thousands of years. They're things that consistently Christians in both the East and the West kind of continue to go back to. And I think there's a good argument for the kind of theological soundness of it. You take something like the, the Immaculate Conception, the idea that, well, one, I think if we take, take seriously anthropology, we, we, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, though, I think before we started recording, my, my wife and I just had a son. And the experience of watching my wife be pregnant gave me a vision of the closeness between a mother and child that I never really understood. It was abstract for me. And so the idea that the kind of mystery of the incarnation is fundamentally connected to Mary and that Mary's, her, her, say, her saying yes to God and in some ways, you know, becoming the instrument of, of God's kind of ultimate act of redemption, that this demands the kind of working backwards of Christ's grace and could be expressed in something like the Immaculate Conception seems theologically apt. So the question from the, the point of view of Catholics is, is this is something that's been held widely, or is it something that the Pope just says, you know, kind of, I woke up, it's a Tuesday, we're going to have a new dogma. In some ways, that's a ridiculous characterization. But the idea is that it's not kind of an invention. No, that makes a lot of sense. But it does strike me that this makes sense for a Catholic frame of mind. When you appeal to church fathers, when you appeal to traditions that have been held east and west, as you've noted, for hundreds of years, and on occasion, thousands of years but not necessarily something we can derive straight from Scripture itself. So a Protestant would hear this and go, yeah, I would accept that if I already accepted the authority of tradition. So I wanted to press you on this. As a Protestant who's gone to Catholicism, what did you see that tradition provided that Scripture, sola Scriptura alone did not? Partially, I kind of think that this sort of Scripture versus tradition kind of view in, in a kind of Catholic versus Protestant sense is itself also a little, bit of red, a little bit of a red herring. Almost all of us have some room for tradition. We, we kind of have to, right? You know, we, we take something like when St. Paul talks about stand firm in, in the traditions that I've passed along either by letter or by word of mouth. So, so clearly that's something that's always been there. Equally, if we look at something like, what's the, the passage in John, the woman caught in adultery, pericope adulteri, you know, you have a text that you have a passage 
that is part of our scripture that seems to have clearly been interpolated in. If Eusebius is right, I think he says it comes from, from Papias, that, that kind of possible disciple of John the Elder or something like that, maybe was part of another text, the Gospel of the Hebrews. I think sometimes the kind of line between scripture and tradition is a little bit fuzzier than most of us make out. So I guess I think that's, that's kind of where I'm coming from. Then also when you read people like Augustine, Augustine talks at one point in one of his books later on, on, on the care for the dead. He talks about, why should you pray for the dead? And he gives two reasons. First, because he's one of those church fathers who accepts the larger canon uh, of the Old Testament. He says, well, you go to 2 Maccabees. So it says in the Bible to do it. But on the other hand, you have the practice of the church that has done this from sort of time immemorial. And for him, there are those two categories. It sort of shows up in people like Basil as well. So again, I recognize that to Protestant audiences, an appeal to the patristic authors may not necessarily be a valuable one, though. You think about someone like Augustine, I think holds a lot of weight. So I think the question isn't, oh, hey, these are authorities in themselves but they are kind of prime interpreters of scripture as well. We've been talking a bit about these splits ideologically and institutionally between Protestant and Catholic. I know that your area of specialty is actually in the 16th century. Yes, right. Yeah. Uh, Reformation Britain in particular. So you're actually a, a specialist on the Reformation, the moment when the Protestant church split apart from the Catholic Church. I was wondering if you could kind of just give us a brief overview of the Reformation and what that was as an event that led to this split between Protestants and Catholics. Simply put, the Reformation is a period starting in the 16th century that is kind of a profound transformation in Western Christianity. So here we're talking about the kind of Christianity that hasn't already split East and West at 1054. Often when I talk about this with students, I kind of use three alliterative categories. We've already got one R with Reformation. Why don't we have a couple more? It's a reform, it's a rupture, and it's a revolution. One of the difficulties about speaking about the Reformation as a historical period is I think it might also kind of oversimplify for us the kind of coherentness of the Reformation. I think scholars now oftentimes are starting to use Reformations plural to talk about this, to see parallel movements that happen that are interrelated to each other, that are interacting with each other. But I use these three categories of reform, rupture, and revolution, because I think it shows you some of the ways in which thinkers in the 16th century start to disagree with each other. On the kind of eve of the Reformation, there's a push really from, from all sorts of members of the church to say reform in some sense is needed. There's both structures that need reforming. There's practices that need reforming. So that's kind of a push. And because, you know, sort of Renaissance humanism has been changing the politics, changing the literature, changing the art of the period, the push is let's go back to the sources. Let's go back particularly to the text of the Bible, the text of the Bible in Greek. Let's go back to the patristic authors. So there's this idea of reform, and it's a reform that is about returning to an earlier form of Christianity. Then what happens, more or less, and again, I'm making a huge story, a much smaller one, is that some folks decide that, well, the problem with this is that certain parts of the church have made themselves irreformable. That's the kind of claim that Luther makes starting in about the early 1520s. And so you start to have this experience of rupture. That gives you two groups, right? You have Catholic reformers that are continuing on, that are saying the church needs to be reformed in lots of ways, but it needs to reform from within. Then you have folks that are saying, actually, fundamentally, there's something that's gone wrong. 
and they'll express it slightly differently. Luther will say it in starker terms, that the church has become a false church, things like that. Someone like Calvin will say it in, in slightly less stark terms. We'll say, well, there's some of the remnants of the true church are there, but they've been obscured in some profound ways. But because medieval and Renaissance religion, and really all pre-modern religion, is fundamentally interconnected with all the other facets of human life, right? This isn't just a change in religion. It's a change that connects to culture, to politics, to literature, economics. And so part of the shift isn't also just, it's not just a reform. It's not just a rupture. But it also becomes a revolution because some people say, well, look, Dr. Martin, if we, if we took your word seriously, that would mean society would have to change. That would mean peasants would have different kinds of rights. That would mean certain kinds of old authorities should be done away with. And here's the interesting thing about the Reformation is you have people, someone like Luther is a really good example of this. You have someone who's such a radical in some ways early in his life that the second half of his life, he ends up fighting a lot of rearguard actions saying, here's what I didn't mean. Don't do this inveighing against the peasants' war and various other things like that. You know, I've been kind of socially radical or in, in certain senses, but when it comes to other things like what should happen in the, in the home, what should happen in society, what kinds of careers should we be locked into those things, he ends up having to say a much, to, to take the much more conservative position. Even theologically, he finds himself overwrought by people like Ulrich Zwingli, who are saying, well, you know, I agree with you on some things, but I also think that communion is symbolic. And Luther's horrified by this. So those are the kind of categories that I would use to kind of set this up. That's a starting point. I know it's a simplified history, but it wasn't a simplistic history. And I really appreciate that rendition of it. But one thing I really did also want to touch upon is that break where Luther said, it is by grace alone and not by works. And as Protestants, we often, when we think of the Catholic Church, we think, well, there are ones who add to grace. It's grace plus something as I've heard it been framed. How accurate is that? How much do you want to push back on that? I have the kind of weird experience of being a historian, and I feel like historians are mostly just going like, uh, 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 let's, let's try to nuance that. So we're not that great at dinner parties. But I think with this, I'd like to say Catholics, in, in terms of really pushing back, right, we'll hear something like, you know, sola fide, and this kind of thing, and say, we don't think works alone. But the idea of grace, I think sometimes it almost becomes a kind of dangerous dichotomy. We profoundly believe in grace. And I don't think we think that human effort is something different than divine grace either. Again, we're, we're the Church of Augustine. We're the Church of Aquinas as well. I mean, obviously, all Christians are pulling back on these kinds of sources. But in the Catholic view, it's not throwing out those things. Where I think we disagree, and I hope that this is providing clarity rather than more confusion, is on the question of how does grace operate? And then also, is human action or are human actions and divine action in competition in some way? So we think that actually grace operates both through God's kind of prevenient action that makes any of this possible and the ways that we respond to that. We see grace in both of those. I think equally, we don't see them as fundamentally in competition. The idea that kind of human free will and a divine predestination can go together, right, from thinkers like Boethius and others, we would say, actually, those are quite compatible. So I think that's where our difference would be. I also think that there's a kind of terminology around grace. Grace becomes a buzzword in the Reformation in a way, and I think Catholics don't take it up with the same kind of alacrity, but I don't think that means a kind of theological deficit. But speaking of grace, one of the questions that I've gotten different answers from Catholics on is, are Protestants going to heaven? We're separated brethren, but do you put the emphasis on the separated or the brethren? Yes. Okay. 
I would say in defining this, and I hope I'm not just adding a third answer to the different answers that you've gotten, uh, but I would say there's two questions here. One is a question about knowledge of salvation. Do we know that people are saved? Who's saved? And then the second question is, how does that relate to the church? I think. And that's how I'd frame it. Now, interestingly, despite what I would call some slightly over-the-top trends within very contemporary Catholicism, particularly American Catholicism, that can have a kind of vicious edge, Catholics are actually quite reticent in saying exactly who's in hell. It works the other way with heaven as well. For us, if one's final destination, like if, if for Protestants, I think it's governed by this, this idea of faith. For Catholics, it's much more framed by the two other theological virtues, by hope and love. Or at least that's, I think, theologically how it, how it should be. And so for us, to know your salvation, to know that you're saved, is not something that we believe is guaranteed. Right? It's not something that necessarily you can know. In certain cases, Catholics need to believe that some of the saints have known, that sort of private revelation can show you this. But it's something you're supposed to work out with fear and trembling. It's a little bit alien to our tradition to kind of say, well, I know who's going to heaven, I know who's going to hell. That's sort of not the traditional Catholic position, despite the fact that some Catholics do this. And again, I think that's because we're human. We do stupid things just like everybody else. So if that's the first half of the question, if the kind of knowledge of salvation, and I think we tend to have a kind of hopeful trepidation there, and I think that's something that should extend both to ourselves and to others, there's this question about, well, how does that work with the church, especially given that you have that imposing doctrine Extra ecclesia, nulla salis. Outside of the church, there's no salvation. That is kind of the uh, rubber stamp that the great medieval, and you can kind of imagine it, you know, with a with big sort of papal bull at the bottom saying, not you Cathars, not you Waldensian, or any other kind of medieval heretics that you think about. So there's this kind of question. And this is where I think the teaching of the Second Vatican Council is particularly helpful. And I think the kind of tendency to say, outside of the church, there's no salvation, and we are the church. It's, it's not a uniquely Catholic temptation. Lots of Protestants do that. Lots of Orthodox do that. But what the Second Vatican Council does that I think is quite beautiful and quite unique is it makes this theological distinction between the church subsisting in the Catholic Church or the church existing in the Catholic Church. Right? Existing says, here we are, we know exactly what it is, and we can, we can kind of define it. And I think the Council Fathers are really wise about not doing that, of giving a particular priority to the Catholic Church. Right? We're not saying we don't believe that Everything is totally equal. Our theological differences don't really matter. I mean, we think these things are true. But I think that there's a kind of epistemic humility that goes back even to people like Augustine that says, well, here's what we know about the church. Here's what we need to be faithful to. But we also recognize the kind of strange relation that we're in. Right? You, you mentioned that phrase of separated brethren, right? language that initially came from the Orthodox, came from describing that relationship with the Orthodox that is now extended to Protestants as well. So the question that, that one might want to ask, if one is going to do that sort of harrowing thing as a Catholic and sort of try to think about your own salvation, the salvation of others, which is worth doing, is I think we have to ask, well, what is our teaching on the nature of the church? Right? And if we think it subsists in the Catholic church, doesn't exist in the Catholic church, then I think we can be hopeful for the salvation of Protestants, as we can be hopeful for the salvation of ourselves. That doesn't mean that we're not demanded to work towards unity. But it also doesn't mean that the kind of cheap answers of Catholic, you're in, Protestant, you're out. I don't think those quite work. Again, it's one of those, I think, sort of slightly frustrating Catholic habits of guarding the mystery rather than defining something in a straightforward way that would be easy for us. I've got kind of an off-the-wall question, but you provoked it Please. with that conversation. 
I often make fun of my fellow Protestants, which is Catholics, it means unified, Orthodox, you know, the right faith. And then how do we define ourselves? Protestants. We define ourselves by what we're against, by what we protest. Mm -hmm. I always thought that was just a, such a strange reformation. We spent the past 500 years trying to reform the church. So how much do you think that the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church actually have a hope of unity in a sense that how much does one side really need to give up? Or is there a possibility that we could actually meet in the middle? Am I right in thinking that you've kind of made two points there? The, the first being this essentially kind of strange problem of Protestants as defined in opposition. And the second being, is there, is there a way forward? And is that way forward kind of compromise? I suppose my point there was more so the fact that both Protestants and Catholics define themselves by the idea that they want to be united. Catholic meaning universal. Protestants by protesting and reforming the church, but ultimately being one. So I think that was sort of a lead up. And I think not to just kind of toot the horn of my own side, those phrases Catholic and Protestant are produced really differently historically. So, so Catholic is an adjective that starts to be applied to the church within the kind of patristic period. Whereas Protestant, again, obviously has, has a later derivation. But I think what's much more interesting about it is its derivation isn't doctrinal, it's political. It first appears in 1529 at the Diet of Schwer, or the Diet of Schwer, I should say. I always get mad at my students when they say diet instead of diet. Otherwise, it sounds weird, especially when you get, you know, diet of worms is no good. But, you know, diet of worms. Um, you know, so we talk about the Diet of Schwer, right? This is, this is Protestant princes essentially trying to make a kind of defensive alliance over and against the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, who's kind of trying to impose a mostly Catholic settlement. And so they issue the protestatio. And we, that's where we start having the term. Now, now, what it hides underneath it is these sort of fundamental disagreements. The fact that, you know, Luther can't get together with, with Zwingli, who can't get together with other, what we're going to later call Anabaptist leaders, and things like that as well. So it strikes me that there is, there's a kind of notable difference there. And just for the sake of like sort of honesty and, and building our quest for unity, I, I, think we, I think we need to acknowledge that. Now, I think on to the more important aspect of your question, which was saying like, could this unity actually be achieved? Is it something that we just kind of talk about or we're kind of demanding of others? It's a really good question. And I think the part of the problem with unity is that it's not just that we have different answers to the questions, it's that we're asking different questions sometimes. And so if the answer is, hey, we want to achieve unity, but people are saying, well, unity consists in X, Y, or Z, you can see sort of intrinsic problems in getting together. Also, you know, if there's different views, well, unity would involve all you guys coming back, come, come back to Rome. That's a very different kind of unity than, than I think what you were alluding to, or maybe a kind of unity of compromise or something like that. I think as Christians, it's something that we all have to believe is possible, right? Christ prayed for it, for the Father. And, and so unity is possible. You know, I've been, I've been encouraged in my lifetime, which, which sounds weird because it seems like in some ways we're, we're living in a society that's more riven by divisions, religious, political, and otherwise than ever before. But especially, I think the kind of overtures that, that we've seen through the second half of the 20th century between Catholic and, and Orthodox thinkers, I think the kind of possibilities of moving towards union there, which would be a, a union that respects authentic difference in, in certain ways, and even in, in pretty key senses. I think there are some real possibilities there. I think I would be skeptical of a kind of union that's just kind of compromised, that we just kind of meet in the middle. Because I think some of the things that we disagree on are, they're pretty intrinsic points. And so I think we, we probably do have to choose one path or the other. 
it's a difficult question. I think theologically we have to we have to believe in union. What that exactly looks like looks like I couldn't say. Well, thanks for that sophisticated answer. I think the last few questions have been very theologically and historically sophisticated and nuanced. And I want to lower the tone of the conversation with this next question. You're pretty good at that. Well, th- thank you. I I work at it. I think every institution has scandals and Protestant institutions have tons of scandals. But when people think of the Catholic Church, often the first thing that will come to their mind is the sex abuse scandals with priests and children. And I'd love to hear some of the journey of how you and your community have come to terms with staying in the Catholic Church, despite those scandals. I certainly will answer it. I think that sometimes Catholic apologists can answer this slightly glibly. And I think in a glib way that, that's glib, but, but also has a glimmer of truth. So I want to take what's true and throw out what's unhelpful. And the answer that's sometimes given is the kind of idea that abuse doesn't negate use, right? Just because your closest friends and family are the ones most likely to murder you, you should still have close friends and family. But those kinds of sort of cheap throwaway answers, I think, are really tough. In a situation like this, a kind of, I would say, unfolding crisis like this, and again, one that's been in the news, right, this, this past week in a really striking way, right, that French cardinal uh, Jean, Jean-Pierre Ricard, and sort of horrifying. So I would suggest, I think, three ways of starting to think about this. The first. And, and I think I should be just sort of straightforward and, and honest about this. I think one of the responses has to be incandescent anger. I think we're almost scripturally commanded to be furious about these kind of things, both outside the church and inside the church. Remember, the, you know, the founder of our religion says in, in Matthew 18 that someone causes a little one to stumble. It'd be better that a millstone was tied around their neck and they drowned in the sea. So I, th- I think it's taken really seriously in that same chapter. Christ talks about little children and their angels standing and seeing the face of God. I think horror and anger, in a righteous sense, need to be a place that we start. I don't think glossing over that is in any way helpful. I think the second thing that, that one needs to do is try to figure out how do we repent this? All Christians, to the extent that it's possible for you, be part of the biggest Christian community you can. Reach towards unity, uh, and unity even in diversity, but Reaching towards that means that a little bit you take on the sins of others. When, when I go to Catholic Mass, I tell someone that I'm a Catholic, right? A lot of times I'll get people that ask this, how can you be associated with this? You know, I can tell them the anger piece, but I think I also have to say, look, how also do I and the community that I'm a part of, how do we publicly and, and consistently repent things like this and try to make sure, again, not glibly, but ensure that these things don't keep happening? I think that involves asking really key questions about, well, what are the things in particular that we've gotten wrong? And we know that abuse scandals exist not only in other church groups, but in in secular organizations as well. Sadly, in, in other kind of core institutions that we have, family being paramount among them. So I think there does have to be a real reckoning structurally in thinking about, well, what are the things that have allowed individuals who did this to kind of silence the victims, to be moved around, those kinds of things. And I think you are starting to see some of those sorts of structural change. One of the, one of the things the Catholic Church has going for it is its structure. I think part of the reason that people think of abuse and kind of associate it with the church is it does have the sort of big structures. People are marked out by clerical garb and things like that. But I think it also comes with the danger of 
Well, these structures can sometimes aid and abet these terrifying sins. So I think there does have to be repentance there. And I think we need to think creatively, right? One, one way that we might want to think creatively, and I, I always think of these things as a historian, is how do we negotiate the relationship between religious and secular authority? One of the things, again, that's happened with this, this French cardinal, you know, that was reported to the French police. He had made some sort of a statement about that. In the wake of the Reformation, there's that relationship, which was always complicated, became even more complicated between kind of secular, secular princes and the state governments that formed out of them and the church. And so this might be a moment where kind of renegotiating that relationship in sort of helpful ways and thinking about, well, we need to have other oversight as opposed to, to people who in certain senses are incentivized to kind of push something under the rug or pass somebody along. So if the first is kind of incandescent anger, the second is repentance, I also think that we need to ask good questions and kind of challenge glib answers. So oftentimes, I think when this topic comes up, you'll have someone who will say, well, the reason this happens is because of celibacy in the Catholic Church or something like that, which doesn't seem to be the case. It seems like this kind of abuse is perpetrated by loads of people who are not celibate. Oftentimes, again, quite sadly, a lot of these statistics end up being about what happens within the family. Right? Family, almost by definition, is not celibate. Also, the kind of equation of sex being about sex and not about power and other kind of awful factors, I think, doesn't work. So, part of what we need to do is also just reject kind of cheap answers, right? Sort of, or or ones that fall in tropes that we've been using in some cases now for about five hundred years. But I think those kinds of things need to come after the first two after kind of genuine anger and genuine repentance. Otherwise, it's a kind of defensive strategy, right? It's a way of kind of putting this to the side and saying that abuse doesn't negate use. Now, I think to some extent that's true, but at the same time, if we're going to enter into this and have anything positive come out of something that's chilling, this is where we need to start, right? Anger, repentance. I just want to note that you said families by definition don't involve celibacy, so that would include Mary's family. Check and mate, John Reimer. <laughs> hear me out though but that would, could still easily fit in the patristic solution right joseph wasn't celibate maybe he was with mary but you could still have that patristic option of other children through an earlier marriage so patristic check and mate thank you for that thoughtful answer and and not just an attempt to quickly solve the problem but to sit in that incandescent anger and to allow for actual catharsis Here's just a last question for you. I've heard it said before that anti-Catholicism is sort of the last acceptable prejudice in, in America. Have you felt treated any differently by non-Catholics or by Protestants since you became Catholic? I think that's, that's sort of possible. I think people can have kind of dismissive views. I, I certainly wouldn't say that, you know, anti-Catholicism is the last acceptable prejudice. I think there's a lot of prejudice floating around in our country, more than enough. And I think I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit nervous about the kind of victim complexes that Christians in this country, Catholic or otherwise, can develop. I think partially because I study an era in which people's theological decisions could be life or death. And so it seems trite to say, oh, well, somebody had a kind of cheap response to something I said, or, or made a theological quip instead of actually talking through the issue. So I would say I, I think there, there, there is prejudice out there, but I think there's, there's more than enough prejudice to go around. And I think anyone who thinks that they're being persecuted for their faith in America by, by the kind of little things that people say, 
I think probably needs to take a look at the global world and the context of our history. So Jonathan, don't take that as permission to persecute Catholics now. That's exactly where I was taking that. Thank you so much for this interview. Oh, my pleasure. Any last words for our mostly Protestant audience? Hmm. I mean, again, last words, that does sound like I'm going to be persecuted kind of immediately. Um, I'm glad you caught the undertone. Yeah, good. Um, no, the, the last... Will you recant, <laughs> Rhymer? You know, if I was just going to leave you with last words, I would just say, spend time with Catholics. Read Catholic theology. Interact with not only where we disagree, but why we disagree. And I think that, that goes for Catholics, too. Read Protestant theologians. Understand the history of the Reformation that shapes kind of both of our churches in some really profound ways. That would be kind of my plea that I would end with. Well, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it, Dr. Reimer. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Very nice to chat with you both. So that was a very sophisticated and nuanced response from Dr. Reimer. I hate it whenever our guests are better at this than we are. <laughs> I know, it's it's drag, isn't it? It's, it's frustrating because you just want to make these bold, brash statements and get away with them. And then the historian's like, oh, actually... And it's like, just let me get away with my simplistic worldview. I don't want to evaluate everything. Just let the world be simple and easy again. He says as he whacks the mic and I'm not going to be able to edit that out. So I, I think that's that's just the thing. I mean, we're talking to a proper Catholic historian here and it just shows you how hard it is to make these simplistic statements like Catholics are this, Protestants are that, or Luther was all about grace and Catholics were all about works. Those binaries just kind of break down when you enter into the complexity of history which is just so much more nuanced and sophisticated and complex than the simplistic portraits we want to make about things. And not to say that we have to therefore just all become Catholics or Catholics all have to become Protestants, but just there's complexity here. And let's not make too simplistic assumptions about each other. Okay, but big question though, have you changed any of your positions regarding the Catholic Church? Any perspectives or anything after this hour or so discussion? On the sex abuse scandals, I don't think I changed intellectually on this. I feel like I knew a lot of the information that he conveyed, but I have felt a bit of an emotional shifting on it because he didn't just give these easy, dismissive sort of answers to try to get the problem to go away. He actually wanted to sit in the problem and process that emotionally. The first thing he said that we should respond with is incandescent anger. And I think there's a spiritual and righteous type of anger that should be felt towards what we have learned has happened in these communities. We should be angry and that should be part of the healthy process of moving forward. We can't just solve it by throwing out statistics about how much the church actually abuses it versus other institutions. Those are helpful answers, but this isn't just an intellectual problem. It's an emotional, spiritual problem. And it was helpful for me to have a Catholic believer who was willing to sit in those emotions, willing to sit in the pain and hurt of what's been caused, and not just push it away to try to come up with an easy solution. And it's helpful for me to know there are Catholics who are staying within the Catholic community and who are taking seriously what has been done and how we can move forward in an honorable way that does justice to the victims, but also finds a way to stay in the Catholic Church. And I feel like that was an emotional barrier that I had, and he helped me process that emotional barrier. And I do feel a little less uncomfortable with that discussion than I did previously. 
Yeah, I've never really felt a sense of uncomfortability with it, just because that's the sort of thing that we've come to discover since the discovery of the Catholic Church abuse. It's been going on everywhere. And to particularly solo out the Catholic Church anymore, especially when a couple of the statistics that I've seen show it's not as prevalent within the Catholic Church as it is among, say, school teachers, it seems pretty arbitrary. Now we can say, oh, we have to hold them to a higher moral standard. But yeah, granted, we do. But when it comes to determining the truth of the Catholic Church, I'm not sure you can then make a jump. I mean, it might provide an emotional barrier. But when it comes to actually determining what's true, what's false from a certain denomination, I didn't see that as much of a barrier after seeing some of these statistics and recognizing it's kind of unfair. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't meaning to sidestep the intellectual question, but thank you for going and then doing exactly what I said I was tired of people doing, which was just providing an intellectual answer. Well, I think for a lot of people, (laughs) the intellectual answer is helpful is emotionally satisfying. No, I think you're right. It's very helpful to see all of these studies coming out showing that the Catholic Church actually doesn't have statistically more episodes of child abuse than any other institution that deals with children. And I've actually seen some studies that suggest they have slightly less abuse instances than other institutions that also deal with children. And that is very shocking to realize that. And it, it does legitimate the institution as a whole. And I wonder if it's just really that the Catholic Church was the guinea pig. They were the first ones to really have it revealed the extent of the sex abuse scandals. And then once it was revealed in the church, we started looking for it in schools. We started looking for it at summer camps. And we realized, oh my gosh, this is an epidemic. There is sex abuse scandals happening everywhere and no one's been talking about it before. And we just so happened to start talking about it first within the Catholic Church context. And so that's what we associate with it. But there's nothing specifically Catholic about this at all. Yeah, moving on a little bit. That wasn't particularly helpful to me, but I can definitely see why it might be helpful to a lot of people. The actual saying, no, we need to be angry. There were a few other points that I did appreciate the nuance quite a bit. I will say that some of the things I still can't get on board with, obviously not, I'm still Protestant. And some of the things around Mary, the answer he gave about Mary, it's definitely right that they do not worship Mary by definition. But there's something of an uncomfortability there that I think reveals something, which is the fact that you can define a difference between Latria and Dulia, like he did, between veneration and worship. But are you just parsing out different words and saying, no, 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 we've saved ourselves by defining it as a different thing? Or is the actual lived practice of that wrong? Even if we accept this definition of worship as different from veneration, it still might not be appropriate to apply this to Mary. And I think that's something that we actually have to return to scripture and do these sorts of things. It doesn't seem like I've been able to move the bar on that, that the Mariology, the doctrines of Mary, still provide a big barrier for me. And I think they should for a lot of Protestants. I think that's something that future discussions really need to hammer in on. Oh, I think that's a good point. It would be helpful to know statistics around how often do Catholics pray to specific saints or to Mary rather than to God. My suspicion, which could totally be wrong, would be that God has less of a portion of that percentage than he probably should. Even if technically they're not worshiping Mary, in practice, as you were saying, is there an overemphasis on talking to her rather than just to God? 
And I think that's an excellent point to make about the practical side of things. I mean, that's purely speculative, but just to move on a bit, did you understand my point where I was talking about how you can always justify Catholic Church tradition by appealing to Catholic Church tradition? But it becomes a bit more difficult when it comes to just appealing to Scripture, which is the locus of authority, the sole locus of authority for most Protestants. That's where the argument needs to be, because not on these secondary things, which you can justify if you include the Apocrypha, if you include church tradition, if you include all these other things, the magisterium of the Catholic Church. Yeah, you can justify the doctrines of the Catholic Church that separate them from Protestantism, but that doesn't come around to, I think, the central rift, which is Protestants don't believe those are true sources of authority. Protestants get all their doctrines from scripture, supposedly, and then Catholics will include tradition and magisterium very openly in doctrinal formulations. And until we can actually challenge those foundations to get back to our discussion of unity, I don't see much hope for unity. I've tended to be a Protestant who perhaps values the Bible above tradition, but I think tradition is very important. And I thought it was very interesting how he was breaking down some of the lines between tradition and the Bible. Because it's part of the tradition what got put in the Bible. It's part of the tradition which things we later added in, like John 8, the woman caught in adultery. And so this line between what is the Bible and what is just church tradition and history is itself a very blurry one. And I think you're right. Any real deep, philosophically sophisticated attempt to reconcile Protestantism and Catholicism is going to have to deal with that. Yeah, and that's the thing. If you actually, I mean, Luther adopted, as he pointed out, quite a bit of tradition that is extra biblical. You look at the Lutheran church today. I had the horrible embarrassment of mistaking a Lutheran priest for a Catholic priest not too long ago. But that's just because, in a lot of ways, in their attire and the worship and some of the traditions they do are directly taken from the church tradition because they still respect the tradition. They still respect it. And that sola scriptura was meant not as a repudiation of tradition, I think as some extreme versions of that doctrine are meant to be, but simply a recognition of the fact that the tradition doesn't speak univocally. It doesn't speak in a single voice. And anytime there's a dispute between the tradition, you need another source of authority to go to for deciding, and that is scripture. Yeah, for sure. I think Protestants have focused so much on the Spirit's role in creating scripture that they've removed, evacuated the Spirit from all of history and assume that he's not revealing things through the church, through extreme the councils, versions through of the community. Well, yeah, and I think you're right. It's, these are extreme versions. But, I mean, they're not that extreme. They are, they're extreme in the sense that they're removed from what the 16th century reformers were doing. But this is mainstream Western evangelicalism. If you go to just your average Christian university in the United States, they might have dozens of courses on the Bible but it's possible for people to graduate with theological degrees without taking a single church history course, or just one, in contrast to maybe 20 biblical studies courses. And that is not extreme. That is the norm in these Christian evangelical Western communities. I would say, yeah, for evangelicals, maybe you look at the Baptist or Charismatics Christian church from what we came out of. Yeah, you can definitely see that. I think it's beginning to correct itself, and I think there is beginning to be some reconciliation. I'm seeing a lot more evangelical churches use liturgy, for instance. I've seen a lot more evangelical churches start talking about theological interpretations of the scripture. Fuller University has made that. That's more of a Catholic interpretation of scripture. That's not the very 
flat historical critical method that's defined Protestantism for the past two, three hundred years. Well, it's going to be very exciting to see that play out. What do you think's moving us in that direction? Why do you think evangelicals are broadening out to embrace theology, to embrace tradition, to embrace things that aren't just the Bible? Well, to be completely honest, I think it might be a subtle recognition of the fact that we've married ourselves so much to the culture of the period. A lot of Protestantism has done that. German liberal theology was born out of Protestantism. I don't see a way of getting around that. And it's been the bane of theology, especially Protestant theology ever since. And now I think what we're seeing is that many of the very methods and tactics that we've used as Protestants have gone to undermine us. And this has been a hypothesis called the Gravedigger Hypothesis, which I know you know quite a bit about, John. But it's just the idea that Protestants dug their own grave. The Enlightenment was born out of a lot of Protestant thought. You get some of these ideas that burgeon only from the skepticism that emerged post-Reformation. And now we're having to deal with that as Protestants and recognize that perhaps there were certain things that in our split from Catholicism, maybe we went a little too far. I think that's healthy for Protestants. I often say when I talk on the subject, Protestants are at their best when they split from the Catholic Church. Protestants are at their worst when they split from the Catholic Church. So to make sure I understand you and to, to clarify for our audience, this connection between Protestantism and you said liberal progressivism is this sense that Protestants tend to give in to their culture a lot. That manifests in liberal Protestantism, but it also manifests in very conservative Christians merging scripture and Christianity with, say, republicanism. So it's not just progressively giving into progressive culture, it's conservative culture. And I think the broader point is that because Protestants don't have thousands of years of tradition and councils and church history in the background of their mind to draw from, they tend to see scripture only from within the lens of their particular context and time and culture. Whereas the Catholic, isn't just situated in their particular moment, but is appealing back to Aquinas, Augustine, all of these types of cultural figures in different times, in different periods. So there's a broader scope there. There's less of a susceptibility to the cultural moment that Protestants seem to have, where we just sort of see scripture for our particular moment in time, whether that's a liberal perspective or a conservative cultural perspective. We're stuck in the moment without the broader historical tradition to help steady us. I'm not saying that. You're not saying that. No, okay. but that was, an that was a good point. I will, let me just try and elaborate your point to see if I understand. You clearly see it with Republicanism in the church, but what's really interesting to me is quite a few Christians who disdain the allegiance of Republicanism in Christianity quite often do the exact same thing with the Democratic side. You see them align Christian values nearly synonymously with Democratic values. And that's a particularly Protestant temptation. I think yeah, you, can't pick on, you can't just pick on one, even if it's slightly more prevalent than the other. What you see, you see it even more clearly in the switch that they keep the same tendency of identifying the will of God through particular political parties or actions in the world. And if you look through Protestant history, that's exactly what you see with important figures that I'm going to throw out, like Adolf von Harnack or Hegel, who saw God working through history but that history was identified usually with the nation state, with politics. Look back to the founding of our nation. They thought 
the founding of America, when the Puritans founded it. They thought they were founding a city on a hill, a new enlightened nation that would be a Christian nation. And that lives on with us. We identify the work of God through nations far more than the Catholic Church, which centers it in the Catholic Church. And what I'm beginning to see, to bring this all back around, what I'm beginning to see with the evangelical church is an attempt to divorce from that, to look back upon the tradition and say, no, we're Christians first, we're American, Canadian, Brazilian, British second. If we did have this broader sense of the tradition, and if we were more aware of church history, we would be less susceptible to these mistakes because we would have seen that this over-merging of the church and, say, the Roman Empire led to a real crisis for faith when the Roman Empire fell. And so we might not have made some of the same mistakes we've made with overly unifying Christianity and our particular moment or America or the we're more susceptible to make these mistakes because we're not looking back and seeing how people and Christians have made them in the past. But the Catholic Church, because of its emphasis on its tradition and on church history and God's role in that history, are seeing these mistakes played out over and over again and are less susceptible to making them in the way that Protestants are. We all define ourselves by a story. We all locate ourselves within a historical story, whether we want to or whether we don't. And if we don't do that through the church, we'll do that through the nation. For instance, I can think of 1776 as part of my story. It's very easy for me to identify that as part of my story. What's interesting is I probably had zero relatives who were part of that. Virtually all of them either immigrated later or were Native American and were not fighting on the side of the burgeoning U.S. Yet, it's part of my story. Every 4th of July, I feel like I'm part of that story, that history, good or bad. But, as Catholics, they don't see scripture and then a 2,000-year divorce coming straight to me. They see that exactly as you pointed out, as this continuous history that I can locate myself within church history. I can see this continuous line going back to 38 or 33 AD. And that continuity allows them the ability to locate their story in something different, something more primary and something more important. I think we as all Christians can agree. And I remember as a kid reading the Bible, it always felt like it was nearly on a different planet. It was so disconnected from the world that I experienced. And I think when I actually learned church history, what happened after Revelation 22 to our world today, that I could see that continuity of the church that led to me, that led to my faith, that was important to me. But even as Protestants, we have a history, but when was the last time you heard anyone talk about Luther or Wesley or the Moravians? Most people don't even know who they are or the Pietist movement and its impact on evangelicalism. Now, all this to say, I'm sounding real apologetic for the Catholic Church, but I think a lot of Protestants are recognizing this, that we need to say, all church history is our history too. I think that's that's totally valid. I think we often think of Protestants and Catholics as somehow having a different history. But for the first 1500 years, history, church history was Catholic history. So we're, we're looking back at shared resources here and what? Well, okay, the Eastern Orthodox, just cut this whole thing out. Let's just end it. Just end it with your <laughs> Just note. my facial expressions, Gazdita. Just end it. No. So one more thing I wanted to touch upon, which is his quotation that he 
He critiqued C.S. Lewis. Did you catch that? How dare he? I know, the patron saint of evangelicalism, because he said what C.S. Lewis wanted was mere Christianity. What I wanted was most Christianity. I can tell you my heart rang when he said that, because I, like most of my generation who take Christianity seriously, want that. But I also think that's why statistically you're seeing so many young people leave into these older churches, whether they be the high churches of Anglicanism, Orthodoxy, or Catholicism, or alternatively into an uber-reformed tradition. We're seeing a renaissance of the reformed tradition. Count me among those members who loves Anglicanism. And I'm not unique. I feel like it's a giant trend right now. Why is that? Because these can at least posture themselves as being the most Christian. We want a place to find our identity within the church, and these traditions allow for it. Whereas a lot of evangelicalism, it really doesn't. Because it's been so theologically liked, so seeker-friendly, that it's done a wonderful job of bringing people in, but it hasn't done as great of a job of keeping and growing people once they're there. I wondered about this need for a visible and embodied head at the top of the church for unity. And I asked him about that, and I thought that was interesting how he was saying you, you can't just have this ethereal, abstract sense of unity. It needs to be embodied in an actual entity that you can see. And that's what the Pope provides, is an embodied institutional head that represents unity. We might be spread across the globe in different churches, communities, ethnicities, but there is one Pope at the top who represents the unity of the church. I, I thought that was interesting. That might have been a compelling thing for me, not to make me go Catholic. It was an interesting thought. It is an interesting thought, but you could also put that around and say, shouldn't that be Christ? And by wanting a physical human being there, it's a demonstration of a lack of faith in Christ to fulfill that role. I think about in Judges and in 1 Samuel, where the people are needing a king or crying out for a king. And God says, I want to be your king. And they say, no, we want a physical king. We want to be like the other nations. We want someone physical there to unite us. And I'm curious if someone can't turn that around on the Catholic Church and say, that's the same temptation playing out. We do have a king in heaven. We do. He was physically embodied. He's also physically embodied, but he's not on earth anymore. But we do have that. And by asking for a pope, you're making the same mistakes that were committed earlier on by Israel. First of all, I think that's an excellent point. My thought about it, though, is that the type of argument I was just making and that he was making isn't an ideal one. I don't think we should ideally have a mediator other than Christ, but it was a realistic concession to the fallenness of humanity. Are we actually capable on this earth before heaven of having unity without some physical, tangible, institutional head that signifies that unity. And ideally, we wouldn't need that. But realistically, I wonder if we do. And it's a similar thing with the kings in the Old Testament. Ideally, we shouldn't have needed that. It made things a lot more complicated. But realistically, maybe they kind of did need it. And God concedes to that, knowing that it's not the best possible outcome, but it's realistically where we're going to have to go. I wonder if that's a more realistic argument, not an ideal argument, and perhaps not one that a Catholic would like, because I think in their thinking, the Pope and the hierarchy represent something eternal. 
I'm not making that argument. I'm more saying this is just a realistic on the ground type of thing. So perhaps we can say, no, God didn't establish a papacy, but nevertheless, pragmatically, it's probably the best model to follow. And God can recognize that sort of post hoc. Well, and I, I think a lot of Protestants make that case in different contexts. You know, they would say you can't have multiple leaders steering the ship. They would make that case for church hierarchies. They would make that in marriage. I mean, complementarians say that all the time. You can't have more than one ruler in the marriage. Uh, I'm not advocating for that position, but that's something Protestants do say in other contexts all the time and perhaps are not consistently seeing when they look at the Catholic Church, but they do do that type of argument. All right, as if we haven't ticked off enough people with our theological assessments already. Well, we can't both be taking the reins. There needs to be one at the top who decides that we're going to cut the episode and end it here. But since there isn't, this is just going to go on ad infinitum because neither of us will stand up and be the Holy Father who says this is the end. And thus, we'll go back and forth, and it'll never end, Seth, because no one's at the top. So you probably would have just slowly edited it out there, right? No, I'm leaving all of this in. This no! Is, if, if you want to make a, a point for why I should be in charge of this podcast, ex-cathedra, I'm excommunicating you from this podcast. Thanks again for listening to the Spiritually Incorrect Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving us a five-star review and subscribing. And for the extra generous among you, please consider joining our Patreon. We have different tiers and different rewards, and you can find it at our website, spirituallyincorrectpodcast.com. from zapsplat.com special thanks to jordan birch and his song starry symphony which you're currently listening to you can find more of his music on spotify or youtube